Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A little more than a week after the violent white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, efforts are being made to fight back against racism and bigotry. Much of the attention in the last few days has been on the removal of statues and memorials to the Confederacy during the Civil War. Here in Pennsylvania, a group of legislators are calling for the expansion of the state's hate crime laws. Maybe we should uh, look call it a re-expansion because a similar bill was approved in 2002 with bipartisan support, but was struck down by the state Supreme Court six years later because the original bill was tacked on to unrelated legislation, and the court found that unconstitutional. Leading the charge to expand hate crime laws in Pennsylvania is Democratic State Representative Dan Franco of Allegheny County, who joins us on the phone. Representative Franco, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF. Okay, let's talk about the hate crimes law and uh, the kind of the basic question of why do you think that uh, the hate crime laws in Pennsylvania should be expanded? Well, uh, the the existing Ethnic Intimidation Act uh, is limited in scope. Uh, It covers uh, folks on the basis of religion and race uh, and gender, but it doesn't uh, have uh, full protections for uh, for everybody. And uh, what the amendment does is expand uh, the hate crimes law to include ancestry, mental uh, and physical disability, and gender identity, uh, sexual orientation. Um, so that's uh, that, that's what it does. Um, as, as you noted earlier, we had that law for a, a period of time until it was uh, uh, proven unconstitutional on technical grounds, not on substantive grounds. Now, these bills, I'm going to read from the memo, would expand the offense of ethnic intimidation to include malicious intention against the actual or perceived ancestry, mental or physical disability, sexual orientation, gender or gender identity of another individual or group of individuals that was according to the memo sent. Now, you touched on this, but what specifically in there is a little bit different than what we have now and what we had before in 2002 that was struck down? Well, at, at this point, uh, if, if somebody, uh, we had an instance uh, you know, three years ago in Philadelphia where uh, a same-sex couple was viciously attacked purely because uh, of their perceived uh, sexual orientation. Um, the district attorney in Philadelphia wanted to bring uh, a, a hate crimes charge in addition to the assault charge and was unable to do it because the, uh, uh, the statute didn't provide for it. Uh, that would fix this problem. Hmm. So, Representative, this has been discussed for some time. As we mentioned, the court struck this down in 2008 on technical grounds. Uh, what kind of motivation or incentive does Charlotte, Charlottesville play into this? Well, look, in my community, uh, as I talk to people, as I listen to people uh, who communicate with me, there's enormous frustration, enormous anger, enormous anxiety about what took place in Charlottesville and a, you know, a desire to be able to do something about it, uh, more than just speak out about it. So in my view, uh, addressing the hate crime statute uh, in this way to expand it uh, so it's a comprehensive hate crimes bill is one way to both express uh, our reaction in a, uh, and give substance to it. Uh, so rather than just speaking out, which I think is important for elected officials to do about uh, what these white supremacists and Nazi and KKK groups have been doing, uh, here is an opportunity to take that a step further and do something substantively uh, that says the state of Pennsylvania is not going to tolerate this. And I think uh, many people, certainly uh, in my community and across the state, uh, embrace that idea. 
Something you said uh, yesterday at the press conference where you you talked about this, uh, you were quoted as saying, anyway, I just want to make sure that's accurate, but have you talk about it, is that you weren't satisfied and you think that uh, there were a lot of other people who weren't satisfied with the response from the White House. Is that uh, part of the motivation of this? Well, I think it, it, you expect uh, the President of the United States to be able to uh, articulate our community's values, our country's values, and those values were clearly uh, not on display in terms of the president's reaction to uh, what took place uh, in Charlottesville. And that adds to the uh, sense of frustration of people that you don't have uh, the leader of your country uh, expressing the moral outrage uh, that is necessary. So it takes, I think, elected officials, uh, both at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level, uh, to to fill that void, and uh, that's the expectation I think people have of their elected leaders. And here's an opportunity uh, to do that, uh, hopefully on a bipartisan basis, uh, to to move something forward that really kind of expresses uh, those values. Uh, and I think this legislation is is an exact vehicle to do that. The 2002 legislation that was passed, it was uh, supported by uh, both Republicans and Democrats. But as I said, the uh, court shot down or uh, you know struck down the, the the law on technical grounds in 2008. So it's been nine years now, uh, and there are two bills: one in the House, one in the Senate. Uh, Republican majorities in both the House and Senate. Why hasn't there been any any progress up until now? Now. Well, I mean, it's uh, we still don't have progress, Scott. I mean, we're trying to get that done. We're trying to bring some attention to this, but um, it's it's hard to understand because this is something that ought to be embraced. I think uh, there are uh, folks uh, who have concerns about uh, uh, the uh, sexual orientation and gender identity piece of this uh, that has uh, been a problem for us in terms of moving other civil rights legislation forward in the state. Uh, but, again, as you identified, it was bipartisan in the past. And, in fact, uh, the House bill uh, was uh, prime-sponsored uh, in a bipartisan manner uh, by uh, uh, Kevin Boyle, a Democrat, and uh, Tom Mert, a Republican. So there is bipartisan co-sponsorship of the House bill, and you would hope that uh, uh, Republican leaders uh, in both the House and the Senate would see fit to uh, bring these bills to the floor uh, so we could have a vote on them and, I think, uh, express... Uh, our, our state's uh, position with respect to uh, these hateful acts in Charlottesville and other places uh, because we've seen, uh, maybe not as highly publicized, but we've seen an increase uh, in uh, hate uh, crimes against uh, uh, ethnic and religious groups across this country. The ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, has said it's, been ex- it's exploded the numbers of incidences, and I think the president's uh, behavior basically condoned it. And uh, we have to say something uh, that uh, that we aren't, as a state, going to condone it. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think there is more racism, more bigotry today than maybe even 2008 or 2002 when this first was enacted? Look, I, it's hard to read what's in people's hearts, but I think that uh, I don't think it's, it's more. I think it's just been unleashed uh, because it's been given the cover of some level of legitimacy. Uh, for people to do this. So, you know, the, 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 the kind of simmering uh, racism um, and anti-Semitism and uh, anti-LGBT uh, feelings of some people uh, have always been there. Um, and uh, I think in the past uh, they've, it's been inhibited because it's been condemned uh, universally, particularly by elected leaders, religious leaders, civil rights leaders, and today you don't have that unanimity of condemnation. Um, and uh, I think that uh, it has basically given license uh, to hate groups uh, to express uh, their hatred uh, in demonstrations and acts of uh, assault and vandalism. Uh, that we have not seen at this level in the past. Our guest during this portion of the program, and uh, it is uh, Representative Dan Frankel of Allegheny County, a Democrat. We're talking about uh, 
proposals to expand Pennsylvania's hate crime laws, ethnic intimidation laws. Uh, he's going to be with us for about another 10 minutes if you have a question or a comment. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Representative Franco, I know this is an old argument, probably was made up until 2002, but you still hear it today, maybe even more so today, and that is that there already are laws on the books for assault. That why do people that identify with those listed in the expansion need special protection? As I said, I know you've heard it for years, right. but what do you say to that? Well, I, I've I've heard that, and certainly I've had some reaction uh, in people's comments on, on uh, the internet uh, in the last couple of days as well. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, the reason we do this, the reason we identify this, is that these kinds of crimes are aimed beyond just the victims. So whatever the, whatever property is vandalized, whether a person is assaulted or murdered, there is a message that is being meant to be sent to a wider group, and it's based on that group's identity. And we believe that uh, that type of action, uh, that effort to not only commit a crime against a person or property, but against a group, an identifiable group, needs to have a heightened penalty. And that is uh, why we have a hate crimes uh, bill to begin with. Uh, that's why we need to expand it to include all groups. And that's why 14 other states have a comprehensive hate crimes bill like the one we're trying to get uh, passed into law here in Pennsylvania. So, you know, in my view, it's uh, really very important to be able to distinguish uh, crimes against an individual or property uh, that are kind of random uh, as opposed to those types of crimes that are aimed to intimidate and bully uh, a defined group of people. How do you define when it is a hate crime, you know, that someone is motivated by hatred of another group, that person, uh, and, you know, someone who has just uh, assaulted someone else or robbed someone else? Or, you know, how do you make that definition or draw that line? Well, clearly that's uh, for a prosecutor and a jury to determine. They have to find the evidence the, and the forensic evidence. I mean, if somebody is uh, is assaulted, like the same-sex couple in in uh, Philadelphia, um, I mean, you have to go into the background of that individual to understand what motivated it, and there are many ways to do that today. I mean, clearly activity on the Internet uh, being one of them primarily, your, face, your social media pages, uh, give evidence, forensic evidence, that, uh, that the, the crime that's being committed, uh, the intent of it uh, goes beyond uh, just uh, the victimization of an individual. Social media is one of the big changes, Representative, from 2002 especially, but even 2008, that uh, it is much more widespread. Could someone be prosecuted for what they post on, say, Facebook or Twitter? I don't believe so. I mean, I mean, we do have protections uh, for free speech. Uh, I think uh, um, if you're threatening somebody uh, directly uh, or a group of people that may cross the line, again, uh, I think that would be something for uh, uh, for the courts to define. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, we need to make sure that people are able to express uh, themselves, even when it's uh, you know uh, hateful speech. Uh, but it has to be put uh, in a way that doesn't uh, doesn't really threaten somebody and intimidate uh, groups of people. And, and so it's a fine line, um, and I think we need to talk about that. Well, let's talk about that because uh, I saw a quote uh, about you know your proposal to expand the, the, the... I say your proposal, I mean, it's not new, but you talking about expanding uh, the legislation or, or the, the hate crimes law... And uh, one of the quotes from the Republican majority in uh, the Senate was that uh, potentially limiting free speech has unintended consequences. Um, you just touched on this, but in your mind, this does not limit free speech. No, I don't believe so. And the fact of the matter is we currently have a hate crimes law. So we're expanding it uh, beyond where it's at. So that's totally a specious argument. Uh, the fact of the matter is we have hate crimes based on on race uh, and gender uh, today, uh, and those have passed constitutional muster. What we're saying is we want to expand it to include 
all groups in Pennsylvania that uh, currently don't have those kinds of protections. So that argument does not hold water uh, unless you believe the entire law that exists today is unconstitutional, and clearly that's not the case. You sounded a little more animated when uh, you answered that question that uh, you, you don't think that's a good argument. I don't think that's a good argument. Uh, I think that this the, uh, hate crimes law can be consistent with free speech. It has been in 14 other states. Those laws have never been overturned. And the limited hate crimes law that we have in Pennsylvania today has also not been challenged on constitutionality. So I don't believe that uh, that argument holds water. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about someone using, and I don't want to get into uh, you know speculating, but someone who uses a racial or an ethnic slur or protest against a transgender person using a bathroom? I mean, are these all going to have to be done on an individual basis? Um, well, I'm, uh, in terms of when you prosecute these? Yes, these yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I think they have to be done. I mean, there has to be some uh, injury uh, that has occurred to, to, to somebody that uh, speaks to a broader community. Um, and I think that uh, each one of these things has got to be uh, evaluated individually. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's, it, I'm sure it's not easy to prove, um, but uh, it should be difficult to prove, and, uh, and we need to have the law in the books. Uh, to be able to protect uh, all groups of people in Pennsylvania. So, Representative, where does this go from here? Well, we're hoping uh, that, uh, you know, the reactions that uh, we got from the state Senate uh, are uh, uh, movable, that we can uh, negotiate with them to, to understand why this is important. Clearly, we need Republican leaders in both the House and the Senate to uh, facilitate uh, moving these bills through committee and bringing them to the House floor for a vote. I'm convinced that they get to the House floor and the Senate floor, uh, that they'll be passed. And I know uh, that Governor Tom Wolf uh, is, uh, is anxious to sign uh, a hate crimes bill. So, you know, I think we need cooperation. Uh, I hope uh, uh, the remarks from the staff at the, in the state Senate uh, are premature and that we can talk about uh, a way to facilitate uh, uh, adopting these uh, these laws. Representative Dan Frankel, Democrat from Allegheny County, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. Last year, a judge in Montgomery County ordered the Lower Marion School District to rescind a property tax increase, saying the district misled taxpayers when the district said it had a large budget deficit. In reality, Lower Marion had a budget surplus of 50 to $60 million. School districts throughout the state are carrying surpluses and justify it by saying the money is needed for emergencies or a rainy day. Critics complain that considering the number of school districts that are raising taxes, it's raining already. Joining us to talk about this issue today of surpluses that the school districts have in Pennsylvania. John Callahan is the Assistant Executive Director of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Mr. Callahan, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure. Always also joining us is James Paul, a Senior Policy Analyst with the right-leaning think tank, the Commonwealth Foundation. Mr. Paul, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, uh, I'm going to start with you, John Callahan. The recommendation from the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators is for districts to maintain 5 to 12% of their total budgets in an unassigned savings account. But yet, according to Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale, almost half of 747 school districts, charter schools, and career and technical schools had at least 20% socked away. Around 20 had over 50% in surpluses. Can that be justified? Well, let me kind of start off with a little bit of, of, of kind of the technicality of these things. Okay. And so one of the things I like to, oh, uh, you know me, I always like to start off with how my family works, you know, and how, how I do budgeting with the family. And when I talk to my, my budget, you know, my advisor 
uh, who I don't listen to much, but I should listen to, especially in this factor. So they say, you know, you, you need to have two to three weeks of savings in order just in case you get fired or something happens unexpectedly, whether it's, you know, health care or, or something. Weeks whatever. or months? Weeks. Okay. Now, I, I thought I heard it was months. Sometimes they say months, but, you know, my financial advisor okay. was like, just have at least two weeks, okay. you know, because that'll get you by enough. You yeah. know, maybe you'll survive. But, yeah, I mean, there is the two to three months. I mean, if I'm really being, being like, you know, very conservative about it. So, you know, when we're looking at those numbers, you know, that's the same thing. You know, I'm protecting my family. So when school districts have fund balances and they have savings behind it they're protecting the you know taxpayers they're protecting um, students and their their family as well and so that's one of the bigger things that I, I kind of talk about so now where does those where do we come in you know three to four weeks or where do we come in percentage wise uh, compared to your entire entire budget and we have to remember there are three pots to kind of how people delineate um, fund balances so there's committed and then there's assigned and those ones are are, are are monies that are designated towards a specific purpose, whether it's pensions, construction, pensions, okay, construction, yeah. all those kind of things, and then unassigned, and that's kind of the the pot of money that that's out there for the savings, and I'm going to talk about that right now. So there's all kinds of numbers. So when we look at what financial advisors will tell you uh, for school districts and the government, it's between five and ten percent. Okay, they'll say make sure pass you pass us at twelve, but have, five. Yeah, have that in amount. When you talk to the auditor general, he's only talking about the unassigned budget, and he says when somebody gets above twenty for unassigned, that's the issue. You know, so the numbers that are out there, we have to talk about unassigned. And uh, you know, when I'm talking about that, majority of my school districts are below twenty percent, and in fact, they're probably in the the minority of it. You know, ten to twelve percent. So, you know, where we're talking about those numbers, that's that's what we're talking about here okay. people are saving but you you started off by saying a technicality there well, are people who would look at that and say it's a technicality because the unassigned is what uh, the, where the surpluses are but mm -hmm. using your same analogy uh the difference between your family and we all make this analogy yeah. and a school district is your family is not getting taxpayer money no but uh, but I, but I have the same responsibilities. I'm responsible for my. I understand, my but that's your income. And I exactly, and I, as a tax, as a school district, I'm responsible for the the students that go to my school, and I'm responsible for having a public education system that that's working can survive um, big issues, whether it's not getting your your dollars from the state like we did a few years ago. Or whether it's a you know pension increases, which okay. you know are huge. We're going to talk more about all those things yep. in just a moment. James Paul Commonwealth Foundation. This is an issue that uh, your organization has been on for a, a long time now. Uh, you just heard what uh, John had to say, and you know, in school districts say we need this for unexpected emergencies. And he talked about uh, two years ago when the state had a nine-month budget impasse. So your organization feels that. Too many school districts have surpluses that are too big. Let's be very clear right off the bat that some level of rainy day funds makes sense. It's a okay, responsible thing We to agree. Do. But as you mentioned in the beginning, the question is how much is too much? Here's the big picture. School districts in Pennsylvania are currently sitting on $4.4 billion in surplus funding. $4.4 While, and this is important, while many of those same district, districts are requesting higher taxes from residents year after year. So to put that $4.4 billion in perspective, that's more than school districts spent on pension costs last year. It's nearly three times the size of the projected state budget deficit that we're facing for the next fiscal year. It's a lot of money, especially when districts are also seeking higher taxes at the same time. Now, school, school directors will justify these reserves by claiming they need to save up for an emergency or a rainy day. But I would say it, it is raining right now on so many Pennsylvania residents, residents that are looking to pay their rent, make a car payment, their heating bill, pay college tuition. And the key thing here is that taxpayers deserve to have a, they have a right to know how districts are managing their money. And districts should have to explain why they are seeking tax hikes while holding millions of dollars in reserve. If you're interested in looking at your school district situation, you can go to our website at commonwealthfoundation.org slash reserves. Take a look. We have all the information there. Um, and, and ultimately, th that's what this is about. It's about openness and it's about transparency. That's what we're hoping to bring to the table here. Okay, but let's go back to what John was talking about earlier. And you you admitted that uh, it is a responsible thing to do to have some money in, in, in reserve. Sure. Who decides? I mean, Commonwealth Foundation, the legislature, the governor, the Department of Education, who decides how much is too much? 
Well, ultimately, that's going to be that's not for for me to decide. That's not for John to decide. That's going to be up for taxpayers in each district to decide, which is why they deserve to have this information at their fingertips. I'd like to see a sea change in how uh, school district budgets are reported. I, you know, no longer can we just say, well, there was a meeting and they've proposed a two percent increase, um, and that's the full story. We need to know. How many years in a row have they been requesting tax increases? Not even requesting tax increases, but above a state-mandated cap that is supposed that was intended to restrain tax increases. And you, you take that, and you also say, all right, and how much money is sitting um, in these un in these accounts? Uh, in these fund balances. And I'd also say, I hope we can get into this more, that the distinction that, that uh, John is drawing between the different funds, um, you know, I, I, would not, I would be hesitant to draw such uh, strong silos between those accounts, Why? Why? given that school districts can, can so easily move money between them. With a, with a simple board vote, you can move money from unassigned into a committed. The money can be moved around. In fact, that's, that's precisely what happened in Lower Marion, the district that you mentioned in the lead-in, um, that, that was essentially p playing a shell game with their reserve funds in order to justify higher taxes. What? So as long as that money can be moved around, uh, I, I think all of that should be considered together. That information should be given to the public, and then residents in each district can decide if that's appropriate or not. Okay, you know, and I, I, I think that most people would probably agree with what you just said about having a more open process. That uh, in a, in a, uh, I'm not going to say a perfect world, but in a better world, the public would pay more attention and go to a school board meeting and comment on budgets, but. Realistically, what happens is, as both of you know, that unless there is a huge tax increase or some controversial issue, school boards often have one or two people in the audience. So how do you get the public more engaged and then the school board to listen to that public? I mean, because coming into a school board meeting and just saying, that's too much. We can't do it. They, they, you have to have, you know, some some um, uh, evidence that that's too much. Here's an area we can cut. You know what I'm talking about. That you have to have a give and take. Right. Well, I, that's why you know I think the answer is more information and, and more openness about this. Um, you know, that's why I suggested that we need a sea change in how these how budgets are reported on. Um, I think the more information that's out there the better. Uh, I think it's great that we're having a conversation right now talking about the, the different unassigned funds, the, the assigned funds. That's good. Um, I hope we could also talk about school districts' capital reserve funds, which is another separate pot of money that many that many school districts have. For many districts, that's millions of dollars that are actually earmarked for construction and capital projects. And in fact, there's even less transparency about these accounts because they're, they're at least to my knowledge, John, these are not available on the public, uh, on the Department of Education's website each year. So we have we have the general fund balance, we have the capital fund balance. There's a lot of money that school districts have in reserve. Again, not we're not necessarily singling out every school district. We've reviewed all 500 and found that many uh, many districts are being responsible to taxpayers. They are uh, some even have negative balance. Correct. Yeah. So so yeah. this is a district by district issue, absolutely. But but more transparency is needed here. Yeah. So John, uh, pass a, a lot of these statistics I'm using from a survey that uh, Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators did. Uh, they asked school districts across the state what they anticipated for 2017-2018. About 70% of school districts in the state anticipated raising taxes this year. And, you know, a bottom line question that many people would ask in hearing this is, how can a school district justify sitting on reserves when they're going to raise taxes? Yeah, first, first let me kind of tackle those Two things. Okay. All right. um, so first is I like, like it that you multitask. I try. <laughs> it's very difficult for me some days. Trust me. Um, so we're talking about these fund balances, and I'm I'm going to say the 4.4 billion. That's the aggregate. But I'm talking about unassigned. And unassigned is about 1.8 billion right now. And an unassigned still a lot of money. For 15, 16. But I'll tell you what. That's only 6.5 percent of school district expenses. So that's about three and a half, three, 3.4 weeks. Of saved up dollars that we could, you know, if if things stopped, we could manage. Okay, so John, don't let me weeks. stop you for just one minute because yep. I I have to point these things out. That's the state overall, as mm -hmm. both of you agree. This is a district by district and issue. Let, let's get into that. Okay, I, go I agree. So it's district by district, and that's the thing. And I, I I disagree with the fact that things aren't transparent because these things come up in board meetings. These are discussed, 
and this is a very transparent process. School districts go in, they, they talk about where they're going to invest the dollars, what's going on with, with different um, balances and what they're doing. I mean, they're, you have to go to different school districts, in essence, and talk to them and say, you know, what, why, why do you have that, that amount? And each district, I guarantee you, will have a reason of what they're doing with it. So, well, would Laura Merrick you know, can justify $56 now, million? Dollars? Well, I don't know all the districts. I mean, I only know, I mean, I could point out that, but I could also say, well, I, I know a few districts that said, well, you know, we're all going to go in on a, a career and technical school. We right. all promise to save X amount of dollars for the next five years so that we don't have to take a loan and we'll put in the first 25%. Understood. So mm -hmm. that number on their balance sheet looks huge. But in essence, if you actually found out what that number was all about, you would say, oh, well, that's you know, that's actually prudent financial investment, a prudent in investment of taxpayer dollars to, to do the right thing. Um, they save on interest rate and all, all that. So I think when we're talking about these things, there is an individual story. You're right. For each school district, what's going on? And some of them are at negative um, balance, which which is a, a problem all to itself. Right. So, okay. So that's kind of the, the, the way of looking at, at that by the 4.5 billion compared or 4.4 compared to 1.8 what we're really talking about on assigned and then uh, and also the transparency side i would love more people to show up at school board meetings um but you know we don't have that many people but i tell you who does show up is the the press is almost always there as well and covers these things uh, so you know there is that transparency these things come up in school board meetings all the time like here here we're talking about an investment here we're talking about a new building or we're under you know we're paying for extra things mm -hmm. so now back to your last question okay. sorry about um you know 70 percent 70 percent raising taxes and we're talking about that now we're talking about my favorite you know, my favorite subject act one which is going to put everybody to <laughs> Boy, sleep you must be fun at a you party <laughs> every time on, uh, i'm on you say that like you are so much fun i know at i know, I know. Like, but yeah, act, you know but, but act, explain what act one is for those who act, don't follow this uh so closely act one is, I'll, I'll simplest form is a way is, is a mandated budgeting process right. for school districts and when it comes down to it in february you have have to come up as your school district predicting what kind of revenue stream you're going to have and try to do your budget the best you can and i uh, i compare that process to just kind of close you know you know putting blinders over your eyes and making the best guess you can at the same time you have to file and say you know okay well we we see a deficit we see a problem here we're paying you know health care costs are going up pension costs are going up and, and and all these things are happening we have to do a tax increase we think and you have to apply to the state and say, we, we think we're going to need an exemption beyond what's limited within the Act 1 process. And so that that happens, um, which is really interesting because, you know, half of the act, half of the people that apply for it in February, because there's this huge number and it looks scary, but half of them actually utilize it. And then if you look at that that number, the people that actually utilize these, this exemption to increase taxes, it's only a, a third that of the money that's allocated that's actually utilized because people are guessing at that stage. So it scares everybody, but, but I'll tell you what, it's a lot less than what is expected. But, John, you're not making people feel a whole lot better. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but this, I'd love to change the Act 1 process so it makes sense, but it sure doesn't. One of these days, it may. James, yep. go ahead. Well, I absolutely agree that the, the Act 1 process, which, again, was passed in 2006 as a way to protect taxpayers, I'd say is not working, and I think there's a, there's a better way. I think the solution here um, is to get... Um, voters give voters a seat at the table uh, through voter referendums uh, this is something that many other states um, uh, many other residents in other states enjoy the the ability to vote on whether or not their property taxes will be increased this is something that um, exists in Ohio for in, for example and what's interesting about the experience in Ohio is that voters in in Ohio often will approve higher taxes on themselves but that's because there's a process at play. School boards have to go to them and say, we want to raise your taxes by this amount for this reason. But that's not happening in Pennsylvania. Right now, we have the system where school districts are somewhat restrained um, by, by, you know, they're allowed to raise taxes 2 or 3%, but if they apply for an exemption, um, those exemptions are almost always granted, and it's possible to raise taxes even higher. So the system isn't working. Um, so, some of these arguments, I mean, were made when Act One was passed. But why do you need a school board then, if uh, if, if voters are going to decide? Well, there's uh, certainly John here can can talk about all the important uh, 
John function, wouldn't have a job, functions but, of know, the, I mean, functions of okay. the school board, but but more important than than what the the, the role that the school board play here um, is that you're still going to need you know they have a lot to do besides just setting the tax rates. I understand. But, I I mean I was being a little flippant there, but what I'm well, my but, point is is that. Uh, I guess to add to that, are voters informed enough about all the things that a school board is? Are they do they have enough information to make a vote? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, they do. They can. They, voters in in each of the 500 school districts know their schools. They know their communities. They know. Uh, you know the state of each school. They know if there's a need, if there really is a need for a new construction project, or they isn't. They, if, or if there isn't, uh, they can. They are the ones who are best suited to decide. Okay, am I going to be on board with a six percent increase in my property taxes because the school board has justified this to me? I'll tell you what. If there was a referendum process, there would be a, a lot more engagement on the issue of reserves um, because residents would be asking even more than they are now. They'd be asking, well, how much is my district holding um, in their unassigned fund, or how much are they holding in their capital fund while they're also trying to raise my taxes? Is this tax increase necessary when they're already sitting on $56 million in Lower Marion? Uh, I mean, these are questions that you would know, come to the forefront if voters were involved in a more democratic way. You know, Lower Marion is is not a good example. I mean, it's the extreme example because it's one of the richest school districts in the state. I think uh, they have a budget of $228 million, which is much, much bigger than most municipalities across the, the state. But still, it it is an extreme but the percentages there are. But, I mean, I also talked in our in, when we were uh, coming into the program, uh, the Southern Fulton District, which is a rural district, uh, has savings of eighty five percent of their total budget. I mean, that now you look at that and that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, Scott. If, if again, if you on our website commonwealthfoundation.org/reserves, you'll find that we don't just list the information in terms of total fund balance. We put that into a percentage of a district spending uh, their fund balance as a percentage of their total spending as a way to you know do an apples to apples comparison and we found that there are actually 13 school districts that um, kind of check two boxes which are not good boxes to check one is that they have over 20 percent of their yearly spend in in a reserve account and two they have requested permission from the Department of Education to raise taxes above that act one cap in at least eight of the last ten years so the issue here is not just the fund balances the issue is really combining that with repeated requests to raise taxes above a cap that was intended to protect taxpayers. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about Pennsylvania school districts that have surpluses, but yet they're still raising taxes in some areas. Our guest today, James Paul, senior policy analyst with the right-leaning think tank, the Commonwealth Foundation, and John Callahan, assistant executive director with the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. If you have a question or comment, would like to weigh in, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You can send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Leave a question on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And coming up in a few minutes, we're going to have an update from the Bill Cosby trial in Montgomery County. Still no verdict, but we'll hear from uh, Kristen Hauser from the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. All right, uh, James, I'm going to put this to you because I'm not going to throw a softball to uh, to John here about unfunded mandates. Uh, <laughs> in that same PASA survey I, that I've been referring to, uh, there was a, a paragraph in there and a graph that talked about how almost all the additional tax revenue coming into Pennsylvania school districts is going for unfunded mandates like pensions and other things. So, you know, basically what they're the school districts are saying is, we have no choice here. The state is saying to us, this is money that you have to spend. Yep. You have to find a way to come up with it. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm glad you mentioned pensions because absolutely that is... We a, couldn't go without talking about yeah. pensions. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> you know, Commonwealth Foundation absolutely agrees that, that the pension system that we've had is unsustainable. For over a decade, we've been talking about the need to reform it. It's why we're encouraged about what happened last week by the pension reform that the legislature passed and that Governor Wolf signed. Still, many school districts are holding, um, I would say, far beyond what rising pension costs justify uh, while asking to raise taxes um, at the same time. And, and what's interesting specifically about the, the survey uh, that you mentioned 
um, you know, every year we, we see that we see the study that's released by the school administrators and the business official lobby. Um, and there's a study that says that schools are forced to spend down their reserves um, and that they have these mandates and so on. Yet every year the reserves continue to grow. We've seen these reports for the last four years and we've seen them grow by $400 million, $100 million, $200 million, and this last year $125 million respectively. So each year we're told that the, the costs are outpacing their revenues, yet each year the fund balances continue to grow. Absolutely, I understand that the, that the pension problem is a, is a huge one. That's one that f for many school directors, they didn't create that problem. They did not. And, and I'm aware of that. Now, there are other tools at, at, at school districts' disposal to, to have to play with the hand that they're dealt, which is difficult. And I think a big part of that is how, how, um, how tough they're negotiating uh, when it comes to, to, um, to, to salaries and benefits and things like that when they're at the, the negotiating table. Um, but uh, you can't it, – it's hard – for me to, to each year hear about how we're told that the, the reserves are being spent down and we're being overrun with these costs, yet each year the reserves seem to continue to grow. So, John, as I said, I wasn't going to throw you the softball, but the unfunded mandates and address what, what James just said. Yeah, so let me get, let me, I'm going to hit two points here, of course. You know, so we're talking about, on average, what's the percentage that people are doing with, unf with their, their, uh, their fund balances here, the, the unassigned fund balances. We're 6.5% is our average across the state. So when you said Lower Marion and others, that's kind of the outliers. I mean, that's a typical- That's an outlier, I'll agree Yeah, it's a that, typical yeah. argument, like here's the one one shiny star, let's not forget about the it rest of it. You know, well, it also includes the negative. You know, It also includes the negative districts too. But course. let me talk about also that 86% of the districts right now are below 15% on, on, on the uh, unassigned fund balances. How so, many are above 10? Above 10, I don't have the t between 10 and 15, I don't have it, but I just did the 15% because I knew that 20 would come up. And I okay. said, well, let's find out how much 20. I had 86% of districts. So okay. a majority of my districts are actually in the right financial model for this. Now, let's talk about just the softball you gave me, which I love. Thank yeah. you <laughs> very much. The softball is what are increases? Now, if, if I did the Act 1 index for every school district, and every school district raised their property taxes. And by the today. way, the index that the yep. John's referring to is it's above what school districts are supposed to raise their taxes by, but there are exemptions. Yeah. And that's one of the more controversial from, again, I got back to that past. Uh, there were 11% of, well, almost 12% <clears throat> were anticipating raising taxes above the uh, the exemption level. So we're exciting people right now um, <laughs> with this discussion. I know, I know. But I'll tell you what, if we had everybody raise money, I could raise uh, and this is off. You know, this is taxpayer money, 1.4 uh, billion. But then my pension increase is 2.1 billion since 2010. So if I just ran from 2010 on out, raised about how much money that could possibly be raised in property taxes with the exemption, and then I compared it to my, my pension costs, I don't even meet my pension costs, and that's that's one huge problem. So even so, so is that the was, unfunded? Is that an unfunded mandate? That's an unfunded mandate. I mean, that's right. just simply we've gone up by three hundred and thirty-seven percent since twenty ten for school districts. Just that line item alone. Okay, so and that's a mandate. The, now we're getting into you know, all James, kinds of fun talk, numbers. But, 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 but yeah, I'm trying to stay away from numbers somewhat. <clears throat> you can't though. Yeah. But we just had what has been described as historic legislation dealing with pensions. But they deal with future hires, uh, new employees coming into the schools, coming into uh, the state government. We are looking at, and no one seems to know the figure exactly, but a 60 to $70 billion debt for, for pensions for schools and for state employees. So from the school district point of view, from the school point of view, John, what is the answer? The answer is a, is a mixture. I mean, it's an answer for every school district. What are you going to do? This the, the SB one and the the passage of the pension reform deals long term. Our short short term expenses are still going to be the same. I mean, we're still going to be, you know, thirty thirty three uh, cents of you know, percent of every salary is going to be spent on the the pension, and that's typically not what it is in in normal business issues. So what what's the answer when you're facing that kind of increase, special education increases, charter school increases, and all that that you really don't have much control over? Um, the answer is, is twofold. You know, you, you need to look at your reserves and got to see where, where that's happening, of course. You should also look at what you're doing with, with teachers and salaries and all that. And our salaries have been down over the past uh, five years. Um, so 
people have been controlling that. Um, I mean, we know a lot of school districts this this year with their budgets cut teachers, cut cut programs. You know, so it is part part that. And then they also go to the taxpayers and say, here's the story. Here's what we're, we're looking at. James, I know that uh, there are many people uh, over the years who have said that, okay, maybe it's not the answer. But one of the ways to a solution is that school districts have to stop spending as much as, as what they do. Are you, the Commonwealth Foundation, uh, you uh, agree to that? Absolutely. I mean, you have to take this on, on a district-by-district basis, but certainly some school districts are going to have to cut down on their spending. That, but, that, but where do you that, cut? Well, well, look, the, the first thing, I, you know, I did mention that uh, salaries and benefits are going to be something that are going to have to be taken a close look at. It doesn't mean cutting that, but in a lot of districts, if you could restrain the rate of growth in those areas, that would make a big difference. And absolutely, the uh, you know, I think... Uh, John mentioned that that reserves are going to be part of the discussion here. I I would say they are a, a big part of the discussion for many school districts because um, you know what I'd like your listeners to understand is that there are several different reserve funds. There are more than just the unassigned that John wants to to box this discussion into. There is also the assigned, the committed. There are capital funds, and and as I mentioned, the the fact that so many of these funds can be moved around easily. Uh, says to me that we have to look at all this money together. Look, if, if PSBA, if the uh, school boards association and school directors are open with their residents a- about how much money they have, uh, how they intend to use it, um, a- and why taxes are going up, then then so be it. But this is information that that voters should have, and that all residents um, that all residents must have, so they can decide for themselves: is the amount of money that's sitting in my school district's um, account is is that something that I can that I can deal with that I that I understand while they're also trying to raise my taxes. John, you know, we're touching on a lot of different issues, but uh, one thing I like to remember from time to time that we're talking a lot about numbers, we're talking a lot about money, we're talking a lot about taxpayers, but we're not talking about the kids. And that's the bottom line is we've got to think about uh, the education of, of, of these students across Pennsylvania. But I just throw that out there. But, John, uh, during the Wolf administration, uh, there has been a, a $300 million increase in uh, funding the past two years. Another 100 will be coming this year. Republicans have already agreed to that. That's $400 million in three years. Now, you're probably going to go back to, okay, we had money cut, but uh, you know there's some question as to whether that was actually money that should have been spent. But still, that $400 million sounds like a lot of money to taxpayers. It, what are schools doing with that money? It, it does. Now, first of all, I think one of the things is we can't agree more that things should be open and transparent. And I think school districts are, their school boards are meeting about these things. They're having discussions in public. People should know these numbers. I want more people to come to school board me- meetings as much as you do, Scott. Um, and, and I love the fact that press covers them. But we definitely have to be, you know, we are transparent right now. This is all out in the open. Um, but I'll say with when Let's just talk about this budget, and you know, I, I can't complain about a hundred and and I'll put a hundred and twenty-five million dollar increase because we're talking about special ed is about another twenty-five million on there. Um, that's kind of the new money that's coming in, but then at the same time that we're getting those additional dollars from the state through a formula, dispersed to all the school districts, we also are getting a hundred and eighty-eight million dollar bill this year for pensions. So if I subtract the two and do a little rounding. Um, you know, I'm I'm 60 million actually in the hole for this this budget um, because I, at the same time I'm getting an increase, I'm getting the the pension bill, and so I look at that and for the past three years, that's exactly what has happened. Um, I would love to you know I would love to have more uh, additional funding and and to kind of pay for those pension things, but that's really what that's. I hate to say it, that's where a lot of those those dollars are going towards. Uh, James, I saw a quote from you that said that the next time that uh, Pennsylvania school districts say they're unfunded or underfunded uh, and that people should think about these surpluses um, and that $400 million that we're talking about, how do you look at that? I mean, uh, again, it sounds like a lot of money, but uh, considering you know how much money we're talking about overall, it's really not. 
well, I'd, I'd say this. In the last school year, uh, district, school district spending in Pennsylvania reached an all-time high of over $28 billion, okay, up $1 billion from the previous year. You mentioned the $400 million increase in, in, in basic education and, and those line, line items. Um, if you look at Pennsylvania spending compared to other states, uh, Pennsylvania ranks either 10th or 12th, uh, very high compared to, to compared to other per states. Per student, right. Per student, right. of course. And and I'd say, look, uh, money isn't isn't the whole story here. Um, there, the Pen- many Pennsylvania schools have plenty of money. The problem is, how is it being spent? And that's why, yes, before either the state or local districts can justify a tax increase, uh, absolutely, that's why reserves have to be part of that discussion and should be in so many districts. And I'm glad that, that you mentioned, um, of course, the, the students, the public school students here. Um, and of course, th- they are the most important thing in this discussion. And when, and when funding is not being allocated to places that is going to directly improve student performance, is not being directly allocated to the classroom, whether that's money that is being um, uh, directed into the pension system and not getting into the classroom, whether it's in a reserve account or wherever it is, that's a problem. And that's why this issue should be so important to everyone listening. Mm-hmm. We only have a minute or so left. Uh, I want to thank both of you for being with us today. And I think that uh, provided a, a good background of kind of where we are with, with this issue. And there are a lot of things to consider and a lot more that we didn't even get to. So uh, I'll ask, and I, this is kind of repeating myself, James, but how much is too much? I mean, what are you looking for? I mean, you're not looking for the legislature to set limits, are you? I'm not. I'm not looking to set a, a hard, a hard number on anything. But I'd say this general principle applies, which is that this applies at the state level or the local level. Before any level of government asks for more from taxpayers, we have to make sure the money that they already have is being spent wisely and is being used appropriately. Um, and, and I'd also emphasize that the, the issue here is not just about the reserves, although that is a big. That is a big part of it. The issue is the reserves combined with repeated requests to, to raise taxes above an index that was designed to protect taxpayers. That's the real problem here. So, John? The last thing school board members want to do is go ask for a, a property tax increase. It's one of the most painful things you can do because you're asking your friends and neighbors to contribute uh, their hard-earned treasure uh, to a school district. But there are reasons, and there are, are there, there are plenty of uh, transparency in the process that people see that. And there are a lot of pressures on school districts that they have to deal with when it comes to the unfunded mandates that we're, we have tremendous amount of uh, cost increases that are beyond our control in, in those areas. So you have to make those 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 decisions. And in fact, we have. I mean, salaries are down uh, two to four uh, percent over the years. And if I took out all these unfunded uh, increases, we have been controlling costs across the state around one to two percent uh, increase over the past uh, five years. So. School districts are making these tough decisions. They're not easy. So check out with your school board. Find out what's going on. I can only encourage you to do that. And you will find out um, there are reasons and they're, they're good ones. An encore presentation from earlier this year on uh, Smart Talk. If uh, you have a question or a comment, go to our website, WITF.org. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about uh, head injuries in sports. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.